Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. And listeners, we're back at it. This is weekly roundup number 14. It's April 23rd, 2022. And sadly, listeners, this is going to be the last weekly roundup of season four. Uh, Dev and I have been really excited to do this for you, but this is our last one. And in case you're new to Weekly Roundup, remember that this is just our way to bring you the news, whether it's domestic or international news. And if you've been listening to us for a while, as always, we're doing this for you. So we thank you. So, Devin, let's go ahead and get into it here with our first segment. And listeners, our first segment, we wanted to talk about a fellow journalist that we saw who was actually fighting the good fight over in Ukraine. So U.S. Navy veteran and former MSNBC defense analyst Michael Nance has confirmed that he is fighting in Ukraine as part of the country's international liege against the Russian invasion. Nance, in an interview with host Joy Reid, said he has been fighting against Russia and the country for about a month. He spoke by video from an undisclosed location in Ukraine, wearing full camouflage, a flak jacket, and holding an assault rifle. Quote, we are here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is protect the innocent people of Ukraine from this Russian aggression. Nance told Reid on Monday night, referring to the International League of of Territorial Defense of Ukraine, a military force created in the wake of Russian invasion of the country that Ukrainian officials saw uh, includes about 20,000 volunteers from 52 countries. So um, I don't know, listeners. you know, if you think that Dev and I will go over to Ukraine, I don't think that <laughs> whenever I saw this story, I was like, maybe somebody's going to think that we'll be over there, Devin. But uh, I don't I don't want to join the, the league, but I, I'm glad to see that there's a lot of volunteers, like I said, 20,000 volunteers from 52 countries that are helping to fight against the Russians and Putin. Yeah. I'm, and I'm sure there are people who are like, seriously, like, are we really, especially, <laughs> you know, somebody who's black to be joining in the fight against Russia. Like, is that really something we should be doing? But no, I mean, I commend, uh, you know, Mr. Nance for what he's doing. He's, he's already been there a month. So um, anything, I think what it does show, it, it just shows that this particular war that Russia is fighting has touched a lot of people. And, and I think it's because what we've always said, which is that the lines are clear as far as who's the bad guys and who who is, you know, on the good side. And so there's a very clear distinction there. And a lot of people are lining up, say we will join Ukraine and fighting off Russia. So hopefully um, they do prevail in their mission. So uh, good luck to Mr. Nance. And hopefully he can come back home in one piece uh, and in good health. But we'll move on to our next story, not on the battlefield necessarily, but I guess you could say it's in the political battlefield where the Republican led legislature in Tennessee has passed a controversial criminal justice bill that they are calling the truth and sentencing bill that would require people convicted of certain felonies to serve a hundred percent of their sentence. And this is according to the Tennessean, this legislation would lengthen some prison sentences in the state. The bill would essentially eliminate eligibility for parole through good behavior or program credits for some felonies, including uh, attempted first degree murder, second degree murder, vehicular homicide, carjacking, and a a host of several others. And the list of felonies that could still be subject to, to lesser time served due to prison programs and good behavior is lengthy and includes aggravated assault, reckless homicide, aggravated robbery, and more. The American Conservative Conservative Union, which is one of the nation's oldest conservative advocacy groups, stood with the criminal justice advocates and faith-based organizations in opposition to the bill, warning that it runs counter to anti-recidivism programs. Opponents also believe it would increase prison costs and capacity. So, Adrian, I think it's just more... Uh, evidence that we still have a lot of work to do when we talk about criminal justice in this particular country. We just can't wean ourselves off of our addiction to wanting to lock people up as that being the solution to crime. We have tons, decades, years of evidence (laughs) that shows it does not matter what sort of, you know, uh, sentences you put on people. We had three strikes. We've, We've tried it all. It does not reduce crime in any real way. Not in any long-term way. It's not a long-term solution. So you can pass this bill all you want to. The only thing you might end up doing, which maybe this is what they want, is increasing the prison population uh, because it's been dropping over the last few decades because people are waking up and realizing that locking people up for years upon years is not going to reduce crime. 
And this is to me, just, you know, those who are in power, who just are stuck in their ways, trying to continue to go back to the old times and the way that we used to do things. I agree. I mean, even if you have a, a conservative advocacy group and faith-based group kind of coming out and saying that this is probably a bad idea, um, I mean, that's enough within itself. I mean, I know the Democratic uh, leaders and lawmakers in Tennessee are already up in arms about this, but it definitely seems, Devin, that the way we're doing criminal justice, as you said, and as we've said on our podcast, is wrong. I mean, it's it's got to be more about re- rehabilitation. And just having someone serve 100% of their sentence is not going to work. We're just like this person said, increase in prison costs, prison capacity. And it's just a detriment to society because you're taking more of our resources within our, you know, within our human capital. You're stripping that out of communities, uh, you know, breaking up families. I mean, the list goes on and on of the drama that's caused between what they got going on. But listeners, we'll, you know, we'll drop, you know, get off our high horse because we've talked a lot about criminal justice and prison reform, but you know the deal. You know how this affects our people, our community. So that's why we talk about it. But another story, this was interesting, I guess only because it's Michelle Obama's brother. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know if anybody knows who this guy is other than I'm Michelle Obama's brother. It's like uh, he probably introduces himself as that. <laughs> you know, I would. But uh, again, Michelle, brother, uh, Michelle Obama's brother and sister-in-law are suing their children's former private school in Milwaukee, alleging that the two boys were unfairly kicked out because of racial bias. So back in November of 2020, they told the staff and faculty that the language on various worksheets and projects was, quote, offensive to people of color, people with disabilities, indigenous Americans and other unrepresented students. Um, the suit also said that the school did not discipline white students, but used racial slurs, acted in racist manners towards students of color or threatened students of color based on their race. Also, in the past, which just is so crazy, Devin, because it just reminds me of like, you know, all these other activities that schools have been doing to try to teach about civil rights and slavery. But this project uh, in the past with fourth graders, they forced them to participate in a underground railroad simulation in which students of color were told to act like runaway slaves and staff members pretended to be slave catchers. (laughs) The students would then navigate through dark hallways and classrooms while staff members quote, played sounds evoking whips, chains, and horse galloping, according to the lawsuit. If students did not participate, they face receiving a low grade or failing to pass the fourth grade. Like, <laughs> come on, people. I mean, we've, we've reported on so many of these wacky uh, slave sort of teachings where it's like, let's let's put you in the position of how you were as a slave back in the day. And let's teach you something about that. Let's let's have our white students sell you off in an auction to show how slaves were sold. Like, come on. I mean, it's <laughs> speechless. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't understand it. This is more so for the the teachers, I guess, than the students. <laughs> and notice it, in this in the suit, it says these that the, the school had the students of color. It wasn't they had white yeah. kids act as slaves in the underground raid. Or they they did this to students of color. I mean, this is wow. Is all I can really say. Um, it's ridiculous. I, I knew that was going to baffle you. That's why I put it in here. Because <laughs> what can I don't you even say? Know what to say. I don't know what to say, but it it makes you question who's working in our schools. Definitely, I, I will um, say, and and just so listeners know, they did stop this simulation uh, some years oh, back. They did stop it, that. but just the fact that it was ever even a thing, it's just. Yeah. So we'll move on. I mean, that, that sounds like something Florida would do. We've talked about Florida a couple of times because they're the next story about Florida Republicans uh, going at Disney. Uh, but on Thursday, the Republican held Florida legislature passed a bill seeking to dissolve a special district that allows the Walt Disney Company to act as its own government within the outer limits of Orange and Osceola counties. And so this proposal was first introduced Tuesday by Republican State Senator Jennifer Bradley, but opponents say it's really driven by Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who is widely seen as a contender for the 2024 uh, GOP presidential nomination. And he is locked in a bitter 
uh, back and forth with the uh, with Disney over the company's denouncement of Florida's H House Bill 1557, which you may know as the Don't Say Gay Bill, which limits early education teachings on sexual orientation or gender identity. And so currently, because of the special district. Taxpaying residents of Orange and Osceola counties have been spared maintenance bills for Disney Park services, but this legislation could change all of that. And Walt Disney is responsible currently for paying the cost of municipal services such as power, water, roads, and even fire protection. So, uh, Adrian, I was kind of keeping up with this on Twitter because I saw the the story coming out. You know, DeSantis is... I would call him the culture war king is what he's trying to be. Uh, He seems to be picking fights in areas that he thinks will help him in 2024. I don't know if he's actually doing anything good for Floridians, but he certainly has captured national attention because he definitely does not mind stepping into all of these culture war controversies. And this is just the latest one that he's going at it with Disney. Um, He's just really setting himself up for 2024. I really don't think he has the heart or he has the intentions to really make life that much better for Floridians. <laughs> you don't think so? I mean, we have I been reporting on, on Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis for, I feel like, since the start of our podcast. Because <laughs> he's Pretty been much. the governor, I think, right? And um, I, I think he's setting himself up for failure because from what I gather, if this bill you know, takes effect like they're wanting it to do, it seems like the local residents are going to have to start paying you know, the, the bills for Walt Disney World, <laughs> which does not make That's sense. Silly. They, <laughs> I mean, they are a billion, multi-billion dollar company. They should be paying for their own maintenance, their own water, their own fire protect, everything, because it's a huge property to say that, well, because y'all support LGBTQ laws, we're going to strip that away from you and force everybody in the community to start paying your bills. Like, how is that a punishment to do? <laughs> yeah. It seems like that would help them out. You know, there's going to be more profits for the, right. Yeah. So listeners, we'll, we'll go to another story. Um, this was out of uh, Pennsylvania university of Pennsylvania law professor, Amy wax known for her history of racist remarks says black and Asian people are resentful towards Western people outsized achievements on a recent segment of Tucker Carlson's Fox Nation. Uh, she said this uh, back in April 8th on Tucker Carlson today, quote, they climb the ladder, they get the best education, we give them opportunity, and they turn around and lead the charge on, quote, we're racist and we're an awful country. On the same level, their country is a shithole. Wow, that's a powerful quote from uh, this law professor. I'm glad she's not teaching at Howard uh, next uh, when I get there, uh, or rather <laughs> ever. Uh, Wax, who attended Columbia Law School, I thought about applying for, has taught at Penn since 2001, previously drew national attention when she said the U.S. would be better off with few Asians, or excuse me, better off with fewer Asians. Uh, wow. Man, Devin, we've—I I didn't pre—I didn't proofread some of these, and we got some pretty um, hellacious stories in this first segment. Uh, she said in an appearance on Carlson's show, uh, mock, uh, "Wax mocked the anti-racist efforts of South Asian women, particularly those at Penn School of Medicine." "Quote: I feel like asking these people, why did you leave your country? Why are you here?" I mean, I, I feel like Donald Trump's found his new best friend um, and Amy Wax. Like they need to like hook up, be fave fives or whatever. Like, cause this is, that's the kind of stuff he talked about, you know, calling country shitholes, yes. asking, you know, people, why are they here? If they think America's such a bad country. And I think minorities listeners, they're not saying that America's a bad country. I mean, sometimes I say America's a racist country, but I think it's more about just challenging the systems that we have. And when you got people like Amy Wax, who is teaching law, I mean, that's just perpetrating these, you know, very racist remarks. And she's teaching students these. Fortunately, listeners, just so you know, her class is actually just an elective. So uh, I think the university stopped allowing her to teach a mandatory class because she was doing a mandatory class. But because of her racist remarks, um, that was taken away. And I am very thankful <laughs> of that. Right. I mean, I think, though, it reflects an attitude of a lot of, uh, you know, white people in this country. Not a, Not all of them, but there is a segment of this country that feels as though they built this and then we came over to participate in it. And I think they get the story mixed up because, uh, 
in a lot of ways, without these minorities, Black people, Asians, Butcher Railroads, like you would not be where we are today without the help of the same groups that you're now talking about are jealous of Western achievement. They helped build it. Like, the only thing is we didn't get to reap the fruits of the labor because white people took it. They yeah, cut I mean, out. This country would never be where it is today without minorities. And I'm not just speaking that from African-American perspective. I mean, even with the Native, I mean, if you go back to the start of the country, I mean, it was the Native Americans who helped you know, the, the settlers survive the winter. I mean, everybody knows the story. I mean, I mean it's just like, it, it, you didn't do this by yourself. I mean, America is a melting pot. It's a conglomerate of a lot of different ethnicities who have contributed to what we call, you know, the American dream and the American experiment. I mean, this is, it's, it, it's what we have all done, not, you know, a white majority. You're right. And there's a segment of the population of this country that just will not acknowledge that reality. Right. Because I think if you do that, then, it reflects on them of saying, well, are we as great as we thought we were because we had help getting to where we are now? So uh, I think, you know, it's just an old attitude that, you know, when we were talking about the very first episode of the show, some of these people, we just may have to wait until they transition on to really be able to move this country forward and get past this ownership that some people think they have of what it means to be American and uh, and participate in, in American values and things like that. But we'll move on to our very last story here, and we'll leave that discussion. Uh, maybe that'll come up in a later <clears throat> later episode. But we'll wrap up the segment here and talk to you about Kurt Russell, who is a history teacher at Oberlin High School in Oberlin, Ohio. And he, ha- he has been named the 2022 National Teacher of the Year. He was selected from four finalists by the Council of chief uh, state school officers, a Southerner by birth. Uh, Russell is a a black educator who has been a teacher for 25 years and has lived through several historical events that come up in his classes. He said his life experience helped to shape his desire to become a history teacher. And the news of Russell receiving the accolade comes as schools are struggling to find more black men to choose careers in education. According to the Washington Post, Black, Latino, Asian, and Native American teachers make up just 17% of all U.S. public school teachers. Black men make up just 2%, according to the American Federation of Teachers. Meanwhile, more than half of all public school students are students of color. And so you see the imbalance there. So the honor of being named the 2022 National Teacher of the Year brings the benefit of the chance to meet with the educator educator and first lady, Dr. Joe Biden at the White House. And so uh, Russell said he plans to discuss the importance of diverse hiring within schools across the nation. So congratulations to Mr. Kurt Russell. Again, he is a history teacher at Oberlin High School in Oberlin, Ohio. So if you're in that area, give him a congrats. He's he's doing some amazing work and we're glad to see he's getting recognized. We're going to go ahead and wrap up our first segment here. And when we come back after the break, we got some more news for you. We're going to talk about the passing of Dwayne Haskins. Also, Mike Tyson uh, is, is getting back in the ring, but really it's an airplane and he beat up a passenger apparently. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with other organizations? Maybe you'd like to advertise or even appear on our show. If so, go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Or while you're listening, click the donate link in the timestamps. Thank you for your support and your belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our second segment here. And before we get into our main stories, we want to give you some quick updates about some stories we previously reported on. So first up, we're going to go to South Carolina, where according to BET.com on Wednesday, uh, April 20th, the South Carolina Supreme Court reportedly issued a temporary stay blocking the state from carrying out what was going to be the first ever firing squad execution of Richard Bernard Moore, who was sentenced to die for the 1999 killing of of convenience store clerk James Mahomey in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina. So as of, th- as of this moment, his execution has been blocked. Um, our next quick update is about uh, the late Jacqueline Avant. Um, her murderer, 
Ariel Maynard, the man convicted in the shooting death of Jacqueline Avant, was sentenced to 190 years in prison on Tuesday. The man pleaded guilty to the death of the philanthropist and the wife of legendary music and entertainment mogul Clarence Avon. So right, rightfully so, he got a sentence he deserved. And our last qu- uh, quick update here comes from the Justice Department. They are saying they're going to file an appeal seeking to overturn a judge's order that voided the federal mask mandate on planes and trains and in travel hubs on Wednesday. Uh, the CDC had actually extended this mask mandate, which was set to ex- expire on Monday, and they were going to extend it to May 3rd. But as of right now, it has been voided and is no longer in effect. So we'll see what happens with that story. You know, I had saw that uh, story. I mean, all of these stories, of course, and I was, you know, definitely glad that the uh, murderer got a really, really hefty sentence because that was just so uncalled for. And, you know, the whole firing squad, I mean, we already reported on our take on that. And, you know, just some interesting news, uh, to, to say the least, there, listeners. But uh, to take us forward into our segment here, we wanted to talk about an update with Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback uh, Dwayne Haskins. Um, there was a report where his, uh, let's see, looks like his girl, was it girl? You know, his wife. Um, was you know was basically telling of what kind of happened. So if you don't know, um, like I said, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Dwayne Haskins he's died early Saturday morning. So this was last week after he was struck by a dump truck while he was walking on a South Florida highway, and he was only 24. I mean, four years younger than myself. Florida Highway Patrol spokesman Lieutenant Indiana Miranda said Haskins was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, Haskins told his wife he was walking to get gas before he was fatally struck by the truck. Haskins was also reportedly struck by a second car after the first impact. His funeral was scheduled uh, for April 22nd, so that was on yesterday, but his parents will not be in attendance. Haskins' family released a statement explaining they have not met Haskins' wife and do not want their first meeting to come at Haskins' funeral. Haskins' parents said they will hold public memorials for Haskins in New Jersey and Maryland over the weekend. So, man, Davin, that's a terrible story um, because I've I've been there before, you know, walking to get gas and it definitely seems very, very dangerous in cases. And it's really unfortunate to see that something like that happened to him in the prime of his career. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a a real tragedy to see that. And he was trying to cross the highway. And I mean, it's extremely dangerous at any time. So it was, I think it was early in the morning when he tried to do this. And so, just a real tragedy. I feel for the family and his wife, and hopefully they get to, you would hate that they get to meet over this, but nonetheless, they hopefully they will get to meet her and, and uh, share their uh, condolences and whatnot. But we'll move on from that story and go to uh, Mike Tyson, who we mentioned before the break. So according to TMZ, uh, Mike Tyson seemed to kind of lose his cool on the plane on Wednesday night, repeatedly punching a man in the face after the guy had apparently annoyed him. Uh, TMZ Sports has learned that the incident all went down at around 10.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific time as Tyson was slated to fly out of San Francisco uh, to Florida. And witness uh, witnesses told TMZ that Mike took a selfie with him and then was patient with his overly excited buzzy buddy who kept trying to talk to the 55-year-old fighter as he sat behind him. Eventually, though, Tyson had ha- got enough of the guy behind him talking in his ear and told him to chill when the guy didn't. That's when the witnesses say that Tyson started to throw several punches at the man's face. Sources close to the man, uh, sources close to Mike Tyson say the man was extremely intoxicated and wouldn't stop provoking uh, the boxer in his seat. And there is a video out there. I saw it. The guy was, he was bleeding a little bit. It wasn't, these were non-life threatening injuries, but nonetheless, I mean, if you, if you want to go and annoy one of the best boxes in history, you kind of get what you had coming to you. Not that I wish this honest man, but if you saw the video, kind of sort of got what he deserved. Yeah, I, I didn't I hadn't seen the video, Devin, but I can only imagine, you know, Mike Tyson, he's a I don't I was gonna say he's a nicer character, but that's not true because 
Uh, he's come a long way. I've seen he's come a long way, but I've seen some of his talks, and he he definitely he can get rowdy. But the the guy probably had it coming. So I mean, you know, listeners, go check the video out so you can kind of let us know what you think about that. Um, but this is another story, listeners, and Devin actually found this story. It's really interesting. It talks about welfare funds, which needs to be a topic for us to discuss. But a recent story from ProPublica highlights how states are helping those who need it. Most most. According to recently released federal data, states are sitting on $5.2 billion in unspent funds from the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF. Nearly $700 million was added to the total during the 2019 and 2020 fiscal years, with Hawaii, Tennessee, and Maine hoarding the most cash per person living at or below the federal poverty line. Tennessee has $790 million in federal welfare funds sitting around, largest pool of unspent welfare dollars nationally. Texas, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Nebraska even have some. Um, looks like they've been denying about 90% of applicants in the past year. Uh, a Texas spokesperson says more applicants have been kind of getting exceeding the income and resource limits. To qualify, a family with two children and one caretaker must have less than a thousand assets and a month of income of less than one hundred eighty-eight dollars. So, that's a crazy story, Devin. Yeah, I mean, I, it just highlights how hard it is to qualify for some of these programs. I mean, uh, the reason I wanted to really bring this story up, which is the fact that we've talked about, even during COVID, um, the, the slow, the, how slow the summit of the aid was to coming out. Like the, the federal rental aid was coming out at like a snail's pace. And I think this story here about TANF highlights one thing too, where you have uh, states like Texas, especially a state like Mississippi, which is one of the poorest states in the country. How are they even able to deny 90% of their applicants? I That tells you there's something wrong with the requirements. There's something is out of balance. Like they will hail this to say, oh, well, we have all this money. We can't spend it because we're not getting as many applications and we don't have as many uh, our caseload is way down. Well, yeah, because the requirements to even get this money and get this help are just ridiculous. I mean, you have you can't have more than a thousand dollars in assets and a monthly income of less than one hundred and eighty eight dollars. You have to be basically poor. Like you can't be working. You can't have a job. And I, n- I understand that the argument is not to help people who are well off. But uh, if you if you have a job that's making ten dollars or twelve dollars an hour, you're not living the life. You still need no, help. You definitely <laughs> not. And it's just crazy that they're hoarding this money because. Uh, a lot of these states or actually all of these states are held by Republican leadership and Republicans, you've said it, Devin, they're notorious for saying you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but you're hoarding all this money, billions of dollars where people are supposed to be using this money to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And it just seems so hypocritical to, to say that and to be hoarding money that's supposed to go to people who are eligible for it. Uh, I mean, there's there's time for well, a change. I mean, eligible there, but, based on which requirements? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's and it's honestly it. because this exactly the state representatives have a say in who's eligible. So it's like, do we want these people to have it? Do we not want these people to have it? And they get to decide. So you know, listeners, that's why we bring you these sorts of topics and conversations because it's important. Uh, because you might live in a state like this, and we need to create some activism around these sorts of topics. And that's what we're going to be doing with our show. So, you know, just a little preview of the future. Exactly. And so we'll move on to our next story here. Well, we wanted to kind of talk about um, mass shootings. They are back. We had a little break during COVID. Um, where we weren't seeing as many, but this is something that just doesn't seem to go away. And so three mass shootings in the U.S. over Easter weekend have capped what has really been a month-long spate of gun violence that has touched both big cities and small rural rural communities. And we're talking places like Dallas, Pittsburgh, Sacramento, uh, as well as other smaller areas like Hampton County, South Carolina, and just kind of highlight some of the, the shootings we have seen. Going back to March, on March 19th, there were 10 people shot at a teen spring break party in Dallas, and several others were injured as they tried to escape the chaos. And on that same day, 
in Dumas, uh, Arkansas, more than a dozen people were hurt and one man was killed when two people got into a gunfight during a car show that's part of an annual community event. And then as we moved into uh, April, it looks like shootings in Dallas, Sacramento, and Iowa left nine people dead and many others wounded. And we actually just reported about the shooting in the subway in New York City as well. And so there was also in April, later in April, a shooting in Pittsburgh left two teenage boys dead and at least eight other people wounded when the shooting broke out during a party at a, at a short-term rental property. So, uh, you know, Adrian, I think this is really, really discouraging. We still have not figured out how to properly respond to these sort of mass shootings. We've just really grown accustomed to having these happen. And uh, it's no surprise to me that now as society starts to open up, here come the mass shootings at places that we gather, whether that's malls, parties, community events. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just going to be a part of American life. Maybe we just have to accept that we're just going to have mass shootings no matter what happens. It, it definitely is an American thing, listeners, because you go to other countries and they have mass shootings, but it's maybe like one every couple of years or it's not like these sorts of things. Um, and it, it, it definitely goes back to what we were talking about. I feel like with the rise in violent crime with John Roman, um, the lack of opportunity of people leads them to these sorts of acts of violence. And when we just open things back up again, it, it just not, we just have, we didn't really address a lot of the things that we should have addressed while we were kind of in a more stagnant position as a country and we could have taken advantage of it. So, you know, listeners, um, we're going to do an episode probably next season about mass shootings and, you know, just to really maybe investigate that more. Cause I know we've done an episode on violence and crime and things like that, but maybe we need to have a professional, you know, to come on the show and talk about like, why is America having this problem compared to the other countries, you know, Devin? No, I, I think you're exactly right. It asks a question because it's like you say, it is a very American thing. It's it's specific to us. So it's something here that we need to really address. And we're just not taking it seriously, I think, in any real way. But uh, we'll move on from that. We'll go to our next story here, which is about 420. So if you, if you celebrated 420, you're probably slowly descending out the clouds. Um, if you didn't, 420, 420 is the day. Uh, and, no, go ahead. No, <laughs> go I was going to say, and I, which of course I'm, you know, everyone knows I'm a enthusiast, probably because I lived in California. Partake. It was, it's, <laughs> I did. It was so, and, and I can say that I partook legally because I was actually in Illinois, where oh. uh, marijuana is recreationally legal, and it was so funny because um, I I had forgotten about it because I live in Indiana where it's not. So um, whenever I was getting ready to you know, get into Chicago, I was like, oh, let me call a dispensary up real quick. And I did. And it was like, yeah, we got a 420 deal. So I was like, OK, let me let me go take advantage of that. But but yeah, listeners, our uh, story on 420 here, uh, this is more an opinion piece from the Grio. But the, the journalist wrote in the days before legalization, when you wanted to get something to smoke, talking about weed. You either had to go to the sketchy part of town to score on the street, or you could call up the weed man and take your chances with his reliability or lack thereof. It's very, very true. Uh, these days, though, 18 states in D.C. have legalized cannabis for adult use and 38 states have legalized it for medical use. Cannabis is still considered illegal, of course, on the federal level. But that has not stopped so-called gondrepreneurs from profiting off of business for many black, uh, from which many black and brown people are still incarcerated for participating in. And these uh, gondrepreneurs, listener, are mostly you know white um, business owners, mostly corporate business owners as well. Because if you look at these okay. states that have legalized it, it's not like mom and pop shops are being able to open up dispensaries. It's not like black and brown people are the heads of them. They're working in them, but they're not the heads of them. So that's what this person is really talking about. And the further the fact that as you look at the industry of marijuana, who is which has put black and brown people in prison so much, which we just got done talking about, you know, and the ACLU even put out some stuff saying black people are still more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. Um, they look at arrests uh, in the past, you know, about 10 years. 
On average, black people are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested. While in mine, uh, it says keep in mind that nine times out of 10, marijuana arrests are possession charge. Having a joint, you know, is also considered a crime. So it's, you know, Devin, it's a lot to be said about, you know, what's happening with the profitization of the marijuana industry, how our people are getting left out of that money making. But we're still getting incarcerated the most, even though <laughs> there's not uh, anything that makes us smoke weed more. You know, there's, everybody smokes weed, white people, black people, Hispanic people, Latino. Native, I mean, everybody just smokes weed. It's not like it's just a black thing. Exactly. But if you ask the reg- you know, most people on the street, they probably would say it's mostly black and Hispanic people who smoke weed, which is it's an old trope that we have to get rid of. But I think it does highlight the problem, which is it just it just feels wrong for the history of weed in this country and what has been used, how it's been used against the black community to lock people up for just possession. Like we're not even talking about selling you know, you don't have these large enterprises where you got this, you know, he's like a drug lord. You're not, th- not those people. We're just talking about possession. And that still makes up like 30% of all the drug arrests in the country. Like, and most of those people are people of color. So yes, in a way, the weed man has been gentrified by white people where it's been corporatized and, you know, we have dispensaries and we have all these things. And now it's, it's acceptable to smoke weed and talk about it and say it publicly um, where, it it just feels wrong because our community has been scarred so much at the hands of the criminal justice system because of our use of marijuana, where in other communities, it's perfectly fine um, to do it, to smoke it, to say you smoke it. Uh, I think even Bill Clinton joked about it on a, on a TV show when he was president, said he said he had smoked it before and nobody lost their minds. But, uh, you know, it's people still go to jail for it. So it's in like in one way we treat it as a joke. You say, yeah, everybody does it. But then we turn our backs when, you know, black people get locked up for just having a, you know, a dime bag in their pocket. Like, that's the world we're living in. And it's just really strange. Uh, is it a really big hypocrisy and a contradiction of how we look at marijuana? But we'll move on to our, our very last story here. We're going to end on a good note. Uh, and a good note being an 82-year marriage where the couple still says they are still in love. So... An Arkansas married couple married for 82 years has made history for being the longest married couple in the state. And this is reported by Arkansas Online. Uh, Cleovis Whiteside, who's 100, and Arwilda Whiteside, who's 96, met as kids at church. They tied the knot on July 4th, 1939 in Clarendon. The groom was 17 at the time and his bride was 13. A lot of people probably would frown upon that part. At age 14, Arwilda had her had the first of their 12 kids. Now, nearly eight decades later, the couple is still going strong. This marks the second year that Arkansas's longest married couple has been recognized by the family council in Little Rock. The conservative group touts itself as a leader in the fight to protect marriage. Uh, per their, it's their mission to protect and strengthen traditional family values. Um, the secret, though, for Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Whiteside is they say that they don't fight. Um, the, the, their fifth child says they don't argue and they do love each other. And she said, if, if you get in an argument, one of you has to slow down. If you don't, you go too far. Our world has said, there's one thing I tell the world. I thank God for my husband. I really do. So that's a good note to end on, Adrian. 82 years. I know. Like that's I say, awesome. You know, some people will be like, oh, my God, he married her at, you know, age 13. But nonetheless, they went on to be together for 82 years, had 12 kids. um, And they are something to strive for because marriage is hard. So 82 years is almost unthinkable. (laughs) But we'll go ahead and wrap up our second segment of news. We're going to get to your favorite part of the show and ours, too, which is our quick hits here. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are our foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work toward progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter using our handle at Black Agenda Pod. Again, at Black Agenda Pod. Now, time to get back to the show. 
All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our quick hits here. So the Cali- we want to get to our first story, which is in Los Angeles. And so there's a newlywed couple in Los Angeles that went viral for their budget wedding and a $47 bridal gown. And so on, on Good Morning America, Kiara and Joel Brokenbro uh, explain how they were able to pull off their big day for just $500. They got married and had a wedding for $500. Meanwhile, the average wedding in the U.S. costs nearly $30,000, and that is according to The Knot. Uh, so the, the bride says she purchased her wedding dress from the online fashion retailer Shein and documented her dress shopping experience on social media. And her TikTok video has been watched by nearly a million people. She also shared her wedding journey in a YouTube vlog, and she said, quote, a lot of people gifted us things. My godmom gifted us flowers. My sister gifted us a runner. My god sister and my auntie gifted us with a cake. And then she told all this to GMA. And on top of that, the wedding guests also supported the effort by paying for their own food and drink. Dang, so that's how that's you get awesome. to a budget of five hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> it's a communal I think it's effort. Awesome. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Hey, you. What does it, you know, I, I understand weddings are for fun and they're really just humongous parties for your friends and family. But I mean, hey, for $500, you're still getting married. The day is still as special as if it was a $60,000 mm-hmm. wedding. Um, so kudos to them for pulling it off at $500. Yeah. And it sounds like everybody did enough giving that really made it spectacular. And I mean, that's how it should be. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. such a cost on them. Or, or their parents to even have to bear. It should, maybe that's a new trend. We should start doing communal weddings or whatever. That's, I like that. Pay for your own food and drinks. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, cause it's true. The only, the only reason to go to a wedding is because of food and drinks and cause everybody loves the reception. I mean, yeah, the ceremony is beautiful and lovely, but, I, that's like nothing to do with me who's sitting in the crowd. I'm not walking. I'm not standing oh, up there. <laughs> ain't got nothing to do with me. The part that's got to do with me is whenever I can eat and drink. So, I mean, but hey, I, you know, you do what you got to do. But our next uh, quick hit for you listeners uh, is about um, a, a dental, dental procedure. Um, so be careful if you're about to go to the dentist. Do not do this. Doctors in Wisconsin were able to safely remove a tiny drill bit from inside a man's lung after he inhaled the tool while undergoing a procedure. Tom, 60, said he was getting his tooth filled and he inhaled a tiny drill while doing it. Quote, I was at the dentist getting a tooth fill and the next thing I know I was told I swallowed his tool. I didn't really even feel it going down. All I felt was a cough. (laughs) <laughs> and he said so like i said he didn't even swallow it he inhaled it so somehow he i don't even know how you do this like i don't know how you inhale a drill bit um like i, I just don't get it i mean That's fortunately they didn't have to <laughs> yeah it's some huge nostrils i mean i, I mean fortunately I had surgery without having to do something too evasive and they were able to get it out of them but Again, like I don't know how you inhale a drill bit while you're getting your teeth worked on. It's you got, you know, I don't know. You're supposed to breathe out of your mouth while your mouth is open. You know, don't try to breathe in your nose like <laughs> in through your nose out through your mouth, like or circle breathing or something. Yeah, hey, he must be doing something. I, man, it's so crazy because he didn't feel it. He just said it was a cough. I'm just like, what? He didn't I mean, feel the metal he going. Probably was on the, he's probably on the, the, you know, the gas. You know, they give you a lot yeah. of gas, so he probably was just <laughs> dreaming. You know, thinking he was having a snack or something. Wow, <laughs> about a snack. Uh, we'll move on from there to our next quick hit. Um, talk about celebrating 420. It looks like some guests at the wedding celebrated 420 um, unknowingly. So a Florida bride and her caterer were, were arrested on Monday for allegedly lacing food with marijuana during a wedding last February. So the bride is, is Dania Glenny and her caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, are both facing charges of tampering, culpable negligence and delivery of marijuana. And this is according to Fox 35 Orlando. So the wedding, which was attended by around 30 to 40 guests, took place at the Springs Clubhouse in Longwood, Florida. 
And so when deputies were called to the scene, they spoke with the male guest who reportedly requested an ambulance because he was, quote, feeling weird and said he felt like he had, quote, drugs inside him. And this is per Click Orlando. Uh, According to WESH, several other attendees were transported and treated at local hospitals after they experienced sickness and feelings of being high and stoned. Authorities collected multiple items served at the ceremony, including chocolate-covered strawberries, bread, cookies, brownies, pudding shots, and a, quote, handful of lasagna. The police report said the lasagna and a piece of bread (laughs) tested positive for THC. So they had even more in store (laughs) for the wedding party. Well, you know, that's that's hilarious. I was going to say, Devin and I, listeners, uh, Devin might not want you to know this, but I'll I'll say it. Um, We we know a little bit about some uh, THC lasagna or weed lasagna. We um, did that back in the day once and does get you extremely high. I, I remember like eating that like the night and being really, really high. And then the next day, I remember having to go to our uh, to football game and still feeling <laughs> still feeling really high that that next day. That was some strong weed lasagna. So I can imagine how these people were feeling. But come on, being hospitalized for uh, having you know for feeling high. Like why why you need to go to the hospital for feeling high? Like just go lay down. Like come on. Like this. You know people. It's even alcohol poisoning. It's <laughs> number one like OD. It's like you wasting everybody's time going into the emergency room. Somebody else who really needs to see doctors. You know. I mean, because nothing doctors. you can do. You just got to let it roll through your system. Yeah. Got to like, let it work what, itself what, out. <laughs> I, if I were those doctors, I would have wrote like. Uh, one like a real real big uh, prescription. I would just make sure whatever you know, whatever you want. I would have made sure it didn't like your insurance didn't cover this pill. But I was gonna be like you really need to get this and make them spend thousands of dollars <laughs> oh, for wasting no. their time. <laughs> like this is the only I mean, thing I, that I, stops you from feeling high. This one pill. So you need to go spend these two thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I yeah, get I'm it on one hand. Because like you ref, you know, you talked about our experience in college and yes, the high lasts extremely long. So I can understand. <laughs> and this, especially if you eat a lot of lasagna, like me, I love lasagna because I like Italian food. So it was, it was the perfect recipe. So I understand for people who may not have known or may not have ever really smoked like that for your first experience to be this. Yeah, <laughs> this is probably like times a hundred for them. <laughs> That's why you probably want to sue the the uh, the Biden groom. <laughs> Guarantee you, there's somebody who wants to. Somebody's gonna. Somebody's undone a lawsuit already. It's Florida. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> but on to the next story. So out of Florida, let's go up to Michigan. So this is about a Michigan man who was awarded the Guinness World Record when the circumference of his tongue was measured to be the largest. So uh, Dante Barnes of Battle Creek said he first realized his tongue might be unusual when he watched a video online of someone measuring their tongue and he decided to give it a try. So Barnes's tongue circumference was officially measured at 4.8 inches, roughly the same size of a ping pong ball. He said the muscle doesn't give him any trouble during normal tasks. Quote, it just feels like my tongue. I'm able to flex it like any other muscle, like moving your finger or lifting a weight. Uh, He said he just never thought he would have won a record because of his tongue. I just like when he says like roughly the size of a ping pong ball, I'm like, that's that's huge. Like you have to have a huge mouth for that to not be uncomfortable because if anybody puts a ping pong ball in their mouth, they're immediately like, they can't talk. They can't swallow. They can't mm-hmm. chew. They can't, you know, can't do anything. It's like, if you've got something that big in your mouth, like all the time, like, come on, like, that's crazy. I can just imagine the things he's, he's doing with his tongue, like, you know, other than getting records in the Guinness <laughs> world book. Um, you know, I try not to imagine. There's some place that conversation could go. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's definitely, whether he's gay or straight, he's definitely showing, you know, ladies or men. I mean, he's, you know, at the bar doing some tongue lucky. action while looking at somebody. <laughs> That's the first thing I would notice if I talked to him, like, your tongue is thick. Like, that <laughs> just sounds weird. Your tongue is thick. I mean, like, oh. come on. Like, 
people Man. notice thick lips. So I mean, like that is true. I've never, tongue. I've never paid attention. Well, I'll, I'll take that back. There is there. Are, okay, yes. I mean, there are a few girls I've looked at and be like, oh, my tongue's a little bigger than usual. Uh, so <laughs> it's like it, a fat tongue. You know, you said it before. <laughs> I've said it before. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on to the next story. Not about tongues at all, but is more about safe sex so you should be doing both i guess but a parent a parent dressed as the easter bunny inadvertently handed out colorful eggs stuffed with condoms at an elementary school in austin last week and most of the eggs were filled with candy but a handful contained packages of condoms and this is according to the houston chronicle and and according to a, a tweet thread among parents it appeared to be an innocent error um, per the Chronicle. And this is what happened. So one of the parents who works at a pharmacy had been dressed as the Easter, Easter Bunny for a safe sex presentation at an area clinic. She kept the costume on when she arrived at the school to pick up her second grader and was immediately mobbed by the children. So in her response, she started handing out Easter eggs filled with candy, but she eventually ran out and she asked her husband to go get more. And apparently he brought back some bad eggs Literally, he brought back some bad eggs, and he handed out the ones that included condoms to the children. So you can imagine what happened when the kids cracked open, and you have a nice magnum in there. But you know, it's an innocent error. It's not magnum chocolate either. It's not magnum chocolate. Um, But there was while this is pretty funny. It's no nobody got hurt. They took the eggs back. But I thought this was funny, Adrian. George P. Bush, who is a candidate for Texas Attorney General, apparently went down a rabbit hole over the incident. He called it disgusting and illegal. And he put out a tweet saying, when I'm, you know, your representative, we're going to hold schools accountable for their actions. Oh, come this on. Not, like, come on, man. <laughs> you, don't try to use this to get in the office. It's, just, it's an honest mistake. It's a hilarious mistake. Giving kids condoms and, and you know, doing an Easter egg hunt. I mean, it's because I remember, you know, doing Easter egg hunts at church, you know, and stuff like that in the community where we would always, you know, get together and do those. And usually they have right. a couple eggs with money, a couple eggs with candy or whatever. But you can't imagine having some eggs with condoms in it. So that's like, <laughs> I mean, I just, it is teaching safe sex, though. It's like we, you know, but I guess they are I too mean, young for the, the, you know, second graders. You, you, you know, they're they're too young to learn about safe sex. But I guess, I mean, some say it's never too early. You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> hey, in this in this country, we don't have the conversation early enough. I'm not saying they should start at elementary school, but hey. Maybe I, mean, I think it should be something like that. I've always said at least start to like, you know, teach them because we always teach kids like don't touch that. Like that's your no, no square or whatever, whatever parents say today. I mean, we do that. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's not too oh, far to you know maybe give them a little something to help them out. But let's go on to another story here, listeners. Our last quick hit of the season here. This is a nice one here. But this is oh, we're taking this back down into Florida. Uh, this is about a Florida woman who has been arrested months after threatening to blow up her son's high school unless cafeteria workers started giving him more food, officials said. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, I would send my son some some food first. But anyway, let me keep reading. The threat was left uh, on a February 3rd voicemail to Cocoa High School on Florida Atlantic's coast, according to police and court records. The 41-year-old woman was arrested on Wednesday and charged with making a false bomb threat and disruption of class or school altogether rather she did not leave her name on the voicemail but school's caller id recorded the number an arrest report said staff members at the school listened to the message and the next morning contacted the police the school was evacuated but no weapons or explosive devices were found investigators located a number and arrested her and like i said this all came from an argument where this is confirmed that her child had gotten into an argument on February 3rd with the cafeteria worker because he wanted more food. I mean, like <laughs> it just it just makes me think, lady, you're not feeding your kid while he's at home if he's like going to the cafeteria workers and been getting into an argument cuz I mean, I know there was times where I wanted some more food and that's when you you pay that dollar and 50 and you just get yeah. an extra slice of pizza. 
I mean, because there were some days, I ain't going to lie, like, I knew, like, on chicken strip day, pizza day, you know, that I'm going to get, I'm going to bring money for school. I'm going to get some extra food because it's, you know, you know that school food was good. So, I mean, I get where he's coming from, but you can't do a bomb threat because your kid's not getting enough school food. I mean, I mean you, you, you take do it to like, extreme. You know, being a criminal no, one on one. Don't do use it. Your no, <laughs> don't, don't do that. No, <laughs> don't, don't tell our listeners that you can't do that. Listen, just if you give ever... your, just give your kid more money for lunch, or give them some meal. You know, give them something like send them some send them a little snack, some little snack pack, maybe a couple of extra lunchables. Like or something. the like the parents to have breakfast for them before you go to school. You know. Send them off with some food. You could try. I mean, yeah, you, there, there's there are a bunch of ways you could. There are a bunch of things you could do before you get to the item on the list that says "call school with bomb threat" to get them, you know, more food. <laughs> like that's like the last. Because I just think, like, did she like was that? Did she just like have like a ransom? Like, did like I demand more food or else? Like, or is this like because you didn't do food? I'm gonna blow this shit up. Like, you know, it's like. Like, how did it work? Like, what, what did you think was going to happen, you know, by blowing up the school? Like, you know, how are you going to get more food then? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just, uh, people, I mean, between this and, and the lady who called the police over KFC getting her order wrong, and then the guy who called the police department in Ohio thinking he was calling somewhere in Canada trying to do a bomb threat, like, Stay away from calling the police about stupid stuff because <laughs> it's never going to work out for you um, in this case. And if you do it, please, Lord, first step, don't use your own phone number like you're literally in the school records. <laughs> like, it didn't take but 10 minutes to figure her out. But anyway, uh, world's dumbest criminals, I guess. We'll move on. Uh, that's our last edition of the Quick Kits. As you know, that's our favorite section of the show. And hopefully it's yours as well. Um, so that'll be, you know, we'll have, we'll bring it back for season five, but as of right now, that's going to be our last quick hit. And that was a good one to end on a bomb threat. So we're going to wrap up the show here. So we're going to take our very last break. And when we come back, we'll let you know what our next episode is going to be, but also let you know how you can keep up with us during the break. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to the Black Agenda podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know. Before you go, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. So sit back and listen well as we get back into this show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's go ahead and wrap this thing up here and get you on out of here. Um, so coming up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian next Tuesday, April 26th, for what could be the last and final episode of this season. Um, that episode is titled How Institutions Promote Racism. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Misa Akbar. Uh, she's going to be joining the show to talk to us about institutions of racism. As you know, there were some organizations that came out last year and even this year and acknowledged their role in promoting racism um, and discrimination against, you know, particularly black folks, but any person of color here in the country. Um, as you know, institutions are made of people, but that doesn't mean that they can't promote, um, you know, racist uh, rules and things like that. So we're going to have a very good conversation with her. Again, her name is Dr. Misa Akbar. She's going to be joining us for our last episode, which is going to be Tuesday, April 26th. So make sure you tune in for that one. We're going to end the season with a bang. It's going to be a great, 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 great conversation. Um, so make sure you tune in on Tuesday. So there is no weekly roundup for me to promote for you. So this is going to be it. So uh, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian as far as the weekly roundup goes. We'll be back in June. So make sure you put that on your calendar. Uh, June, we'll be back. Weekly roundup, we'll be back. So quick hits, all that you can look forward to. Coming back to you later. So uh, before we also go, we want to give our charity of the month one more Go round as far as giving them some recognition and also let you know how you can help us out during our break and donating to us here at the show. So Age is going to let you know how you can help us out. Absolutely, Devin. Appreciate that lead in. You know, listeners, it's 
always a pleasure to kind of talk to you about donating to us because it gives me the opportunity to let you know where we're headed. Um, the opportunity to, you know, give you some insight on the vision that Devin and I have for the black agenda. It's a great vision. I mean, it's a vision about social justice, accountability, equity for everybody, equal opportunity. And we need you to do that because we're trying to do more than just podcasts here. You know, we built our internship team to where we've got journalists. We're going to build that out to where we've got other shows and content and all that's going to be possible because you believe in what we're doing. And the way you can show that belief is by going to our website. It's just blackagendapie.com. Or while you're listening, just scroll down in the timestamp to click that donate tab. As you click that, you're going to go to our patron page where you'll see multiple levels of monthly giving and you'll see things that you get back from Devin and myself. So like I said, blackagendapie.com. Or while you're listening, scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate tab and start giving. And like Devin mentioned, we do always like to pay it forward when we ask you for something. We always like to pay it forward to another charity. And this month we've been talking about Operation Hope because April is all about financial literacy awareness. And remember, Operation Hope, their focus is financial dignity and inclusion. They work with young people and adults to equip them with financial tools and education. And they've been working on getting America to acknowledge more than just civil rights and look at silver rights to make sure that we have free enterprise capitalism working for everybody. So like I said, that's Operation Hope. Go check them out. That's right. Make sure you check them out, help them out during the break, but also maybe donate a little bit here to us at the Black Agenda while we are on break. So uh, the other way you can keep up with this, so there are a few ways you can keep up with this during the break. One way is which you can go to blackagendapod.com backslash news and you'll find our voice, which is our news section of of the website. You'll find plenty of articles written by our very talented interns here that we have at the Black Agenda. So this is something new that we rolled out this season. We have uh, interns who are writing articles for us. We have interns that are posting on social media for us. We have um, another set of interns who are sending out the emails, contacting the guests, scheduling the interviews. So we have an entire team here that's behind the scenes that you do not get to hear from. So we wanted to make sure we thank them as well for the work that they've done in, in populating our website with some awesome, awesome articles and just helping the show just run that much better. So make sure you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news and check out their work, their writing work, um, and also leave some feedback for them to let them know what they can work on and what you liked or maybe didn't like about their articles. The other way you can keep up with us is by following us on social media. Um, our handle is at blackagendapod.com. I'm sorry, that's at Black Agenda Pod. Um, and again, the handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. And so before we go, we want to do one last thanks and farewell to you, our listeners. This has been a heck of a season as we look back of some of the things we have covered. But when we started this season, there was not a war going on. But as we end this season, um, there's a full-fledged war going on in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine. And so um, I want to spend my time just kind of giving my thoughts and condolences to those in Ukraine who are fighting. And uh, as we noted, Mr. Nance is apparently joining the fight as well. So help out in any way you can um, with what they are dealing with. And hopefully when we start our next season, the war is over. But, um, it, you know, Adrian, this has been a crazy season, whether you're talking about the war, inflation, COVID's gone, apparently, <laughs> but not really. Um, things are better, but there's still a lot of work to to be done. And um, I'm pretty sure season five, Weekly Roundups, will have a ton more um, news and things to talk about. Yeah, Devin. I mean, it's going to be a fun season. I mean, going into season five, I'm really, really excited about the opportunity we have. And like you said, it has been a really, really crazy um season you know we've covered a lot of different topics this season um a lot of crazy stories <laughs> i mean just just in this season talking about you know students being put through underground slave uh, underground railroad kind of simulations i mean it's just so much listeners that we've been able to bring to you this season and news and commentary. And honestly, uh listeners, we've had so much fun being more funny with you, you know. 
I know I've tried to try out a little comedy here and there, and it's really made things better in my conversation personally. So I appreciate you listeners for sticking with us and helping us become better commentators, comedians, speakers, and all that good stuff. Um, only thing else I can say is that we got more coming. You know, this isn't it. This is just end of season four. Uh, this isn't the end of the black agenda. This is just us taking a break to unload and unwind and get ready to gear up again for you. But like Devin said, we got one more episode for you on Tuesday. That's going to be really awesome. So even though we're doing farewell and thanks now, make sure you stick with us for that Tuesday episode because it's going to be a great one. But Devin, that's about all I can say. I mean, it's as always, every season is fantastic and um, listeners, I always thank Devin off the podcast for, you know, even though I had the idea, it's our podcast and he had the idea to agree to do this with me. So Devin, as always, I appreciate you for an amazing season and all the things that you do on the podcast and behind the scenes and leading the team. Um, listeners, we make an awesome duo and we're just thankful to be doing this for you. Couldn't have said it better. I mean, that's that's why I was, you know, surprised when you asked, but I'm happy that I, you know, accepted it and I, I see where we are, I see where we're going. Listeners, you may not know, but we have a vision for this thing, not just, you know, not for it to just be a podcast. We want it to be bigger than that. We want to be an information source where you go, you go to the Black Agenda, not for just news, but for other things too. So just stick with us. It's going to be a good ride and we're going to get to some big places for sure, but we'll leave it there. This is our last week run up uh, number 14 of the season. So if you missed some of them, you should still go back and catch up on some news. Maybe that you missed out on. Um, and again, keep up with us on social media at black agenda pod. And then you can follow, uh, keep up with us on black where we have a new section now that is uh, full of great articles written by our interns. So for me and Adrian, And all of the interns here at the Black Agenda, we appreciate your support this season with our weekly roundup show. And we will be back here Tuesday, April 26th to wrap up the season. So until then, we'll catch you next time. 